9, verse 6. Okay, Romans 9, verse 6. If you need a Bible, okay, and I know you're a little shy to get your hand up first. If you need a Bible, raise your hands, and then people will come down and bring you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible whatsoever, it's our free gift to you. Please take this home with you, read it, enjoy it, okay? So take one of those, and then uh, turn to Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Okay. So here's the deal. As they're doing that, like I said at the start of this, last week, we took kind of the entire sermon to go over five verses in the start of Romans 9, but we did it even more so to introduce how we hoped God would move both in chapter 9 and then in 10 and 11. Okay, uh, We spent time just saying, okay, here are the realities about what we're about to talk about. How does God desire for us to approach it? What are the means of, uh, of theological perspective that we're supposed to have on it and things like that? So a lot of you weren't here last week, both student and non, because of spring break. And so I want to recap some of the stuff that we introed last week, because it's going to be very influential in what we talk about today, next week, and even for the next two months as we go through chapters 9, 10, and 11. So we said this about chapter 8 last week, that it is one of the most beloved and celebrated and shared texts of all time, right? That everyone loves Romans 8. But on the other hand, Romans 9 is, is quite contrary to that, that most people try and uh, avoid it or ignore it, or in the midst of trying to pursue it, they debate it nonstop, okay? And so that's, that's kind of where we're coming at with 9. So last week we had a guy here, Mike, who said that the first time he read Romans chapter 9, he literally threw his Bible across the room, okay? Um, and so this is what we're dealing with. Like, this is the reality of the text that we approach really over the next few weeks. We said in the midst of this, over the next really two months, there's going to be some serious doctrine that we're going to discuss. That theology is going to be very present in a lot of these texts. And then we said last week, listen, that there's two ways to approach theology that are very unhealthy and one way to approach it that's very healthy. The, two of the unhealthy ways is, one, going into it and saying, it's not that important, Okay. And so it, it's just, listen, it's, it's just emotional. It's just God and me. I don't need to know anything about him. I don't need to read. The, that's, that's not healthy. The other one is to say theology is God, right? To say theology is of utmost importance. And so, man, we need to study and read. And if we don't, then we can't know God. That's not true either. Theology cannot become an idol for us. Theology is a means for us to know God that we know God understand? And so uh, the way that we healthily approach this is just by saying, listen, we are going to be honest with what the text says, honest with doctrine, honest with theology, in the hopes that it makes us love God more and not just be right, okay? And, and a lot of people approach theology, they'll approach Romans 9 with, how can I be right here? How can I get into the text? How can I look at the different, how can I do all of the systematic stuff to arrive at a position where if I'm in a debate, I can trump them, that is not a good motive to approach theology with. And so what we saw last week was Paul approaching what he's about to share in t today and next week in Romans 9 with a heart that was filled with anguish, right? A heart that was filled with a love and concern and desire for his Jewish brethren. And we said, man, that's, that's kind of the heart that we want approaching these texts. There's kind of this fear of the Lord, but also a love of God and a love of what he's doing. Last thing I'll say about theology before we kind of jump into this is um, God's character at every level must inform truth, okay? 
God's character must inform truth. And so if we've seen from Romans 1 to Romans 8, and we, again, we loved Romans 8, right? So nothing separates us from the love of God. He, he adopts us. He brings us in. He's good. He's sovereign. He's faithful. He's loving. He's, all of that must inform what we read today. We cannot read Romans 9 through the lens of what we want to be true, what we wish he said. We have to read it through the character of God. Okay? We have to read it through who he is. Now, this is true about every relationship in your life, right? That you judge what people say to you, the validity of what they say to you, based on what you know to be true about them. So um, how many people have ever heard uh, of, of War of the Roses? Anyone seen that? It's, so it's like, you guys shouldn't listen to that sta- uh, radio station anyway. Um, essentially, John Jay and Rich, they do this, this uh, talk show deal on like 106.1 or something. I'm not really sure. I don't listen to it. But... Um, they, they do this thing, and it's kind of a total prank, right? So they, they bring in uh, kind of a husband and wife, and usually the problem is the wife thinks the husband's cheating. And so they set up this prank to catch the husband in a lie where he would give roses to kind of this third-party female that is, right, just wrecking everything. And so um, what happens, though, and I just listened to one the other day, is, is the, the, it, there was boyfriend-girlfriend. So the girlfriend approaches this conversation. She's having this conversation with the, with the DJs, and, and the guy, they're asking questions like, so about this guy, like, is he, is he normally like a pretty good guy? And, and she says, well, no, he's a good guy, but he just thinks that it's okay to, you know, it's okay for men to sleep with multiple women, but it's not okay for women to sleep with multiple men because men need it and women don't, right? I was like, okay, well, then you should have left him a long time ago is the first thing you say there. Um, but, but you begin to say, okay, this, and she continues on explaining this guy's character, right? That he's lied before, that he's cheated before, and that he's often talked about how he'd like to cheat with someone at his work, okay? So then she approaches this conversation, and they get into the call. He says, oh, I'd like to give the flowers to, and he says some other girl's name instead of his uh, girlfriend, and, and she begins to engage in dialogue with him. And you can tell, right, that everything he says is 100% lie, Right? Everything he says, he's lying because you've already understood his character beforehand. And so then you can interpret what's being said based on what, who, what you know to be true about the guy. Okay. But in the midst of it, what was she doing? She was saying, oh, okay. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that that, 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 that was going on and bought into every lie that this dude was selling. And here's what's crazy. We sit here and I'm listening to this and I'm like, that girl is crazy. Like he needs to, you know, kick that fool to curb you know, let me know if I can intervene, something. But she doesn't. She says, no, I'll probably take him back and that type of thing, and just as long as he doesn't do this and, and on and on. The truth is, as crazy as we might see how that is, I think that's how we approach theology pretty often. Like, we trust the character of God. We believe that he's good and sovereign in moments. But what happens is, is that there becomes texts that are difficult that disagree with our heart or our conviction. And so then all of a sudden we forget everything we know about God. So God couldn't be saying what he's saying here because that's not God. No, maybe God's character trumps what you think should be right. And so our approach today needs to be through the lens of God's character and not our own. Amen? Does that make sense? Okay, verse six, let's do it. 
but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Stop there. So this is already, listen, you got to get context here. So verses one through five, very briefly, I said, Paul was looking at and sitting in the reality that many of his Jewish brothers and sisters don't know Jesus, right? Like in our terms, that they are not saved, right? That they don't place their faith in Christ. And so he's saying, man, this whole time, Israel was given all of these promises throughout the Old Testament. They were given prophets and promises and covenants and on and on and on. They were given all of this and yet they've missed Jesus. And so God, so Paul's asking the question here, almost rhetorically of, God, in the Old Testament, you promised all this stuff to our people but it seems in the current situation that many of our people don't believe in you and aren't going to receive the blessings that we just saw in Romans 1 through 8. So, God, are you not faithful to your promises? And listen, that comes down to us then, right? Because now sitting at, in 2014, having studied Scripture, looking at Romans 8, saying nothing can separate us from the love of God— This reality, this is good news for us, but how can we trust it if we don't think that God is going to fulfill the promises he's given to Israel? Okay, so it's a very complex kind of scriptural historical situation that's going on here. So Paul sits in the anguish and lament that many of his brethren do not know Christ. And so how will they inherit the promises of God that he gave to them way back when? So then he says, did God's promises fail? No, the word of God has not failed. So the second half of six there. Here's his main thesis statement for why this is true. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay? So not everyone who has an ethnic background that is Israeli is part of the Israel that Paul is communicating here. So he's immediately setting up these two separate types of worlds, realms, paradigms. So you have a ethnic Israel and a spiritual Israel. These two realities for the people of God. And for the longest time, the Jews were saying, man, because I'm Jewish, because I'm part of this ethnic Israel, then I'm good. Then that's that's all I have to think about. I am part of God's chosen people, and so anything else doesn't really matter. But Paul's making the claim that right now, listen, no, here's the truth, is that those who are descended from Israel are not necessarily part of Israel. And this would have been a huge, huge shock to the average Jew, right? Like, wait a minute, I'm not Jewish? Like, I'm not in the house of God? I'm not part of the family of God? I'm not, I don't get the covenants, I don't get the, all that stuff? That's not for me anymore? It's, it's almost like, how, uh, if you guys ever seen Elf, right? It's like when Buddy finds out he's not an elf, right? It, it, how many people have seen The Jerk? I didn't know if anyone had seen that. The Jerk? So cool. There's some Christians. Um, in The Jerk, uh, it's like when Steve Martin finds out he's white, okay? Like, so he grew up in a black family, didn't know he wasn't black, and then all of a sudden, something happens. He hears like a country song on the radio, and all of a sudden, he learns how to dance, Right? And so he realizes he's white for the first time. And here's what happens. In the midst of both those examples, everything they knew now has a new lens on it, right? Everything they knew has a new lens. So they look back at every word spoken from their parents, every word and and situation and historical moment throughout their life now has a whole nother lens on it. I'm not this. And so that informs everything else. 
And so for the average Jew that would hear this from Paul right now, I imagine this immediate pushback and fear and trepidation of, what are you saying? My whole life, this is the way I saw the world. My whole life, I assumed this was true for me. And maybe it's not. Maybe that's not the reality. And so everything begins to somewhat crumble. And so here's what Paul does. I think knowing very well that there's going to be some harsh pushback towards this idea from the Jewish community and even, listen, even from just the, the believing Jews and the believing Greeks and the believing Gentiles, between everyone there's some pushback of like, well, wait a minute. Like, what are you saying? And so Paul is going to then clarify his position here with two historical examples from Scripture. He's going to give us two examples from Scripture to uh, reinforce what he's just communicated, that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So the first one's going to be Isaac, Ishmael, and Sarah. Okay, those three, Isaac and Ishmael, their mom, Sarah. The next one's going to be Jacob, Esau, and their mom, Rebecca. We're going to find that these stories have big similarities, and you can see that Paul is making a holistic point. This is what I want you to know. And so we'll see why, and we'll ask the question later. Why did he choose these two stories? We'll find out in a moment. So verse 7. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So again, those, that dichotomy of ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel, now it's the same as uh, uh, children of the flesh and children of faith, children of the promise. And so these two things are, again, kind of split up into these, these two worlds, these two paradigms that we have to then navigate. Okay? The story behind Abraham, and many of you have probably heard his, na- his name before, right? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had, and I am, and so are you, so let's all, right, so, yeah, and then left, yeah, so, um, here's what's funny, I didn't even grow up in the church, and somehow I know that, like, I, I, this is ridiculous that that song is what we gave the world, it's like, (laughs) congratulations, world, okay, um, it's my own problems, um, But we know Father Abraham, right? So Abraham in the Old Testament gets called by God, set apart, says, listen, Abraham, here's the deal, man. I I am going to raise you up, and through you and your lineage and your generations and your heritage, you will be the father of many nations, and you will bless the world. Okay. And so this covenant is established with Abraham way back when. Okay. And so Abraham's thinking to himself, like, okay, but... How is this going to work out? How are you going to do this? You know, what's this, how is this going to shake out? He knows that obviously in order for there to be kind of this generational blessing that passes down, he probably needs some children, but he runs into problems there as well. So what ends up happening, and we're not going to get too much in the story for time's sake, but he ends up having two boys, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael he has first with Hagar, okay? Then he's going to have another baby, Isaac, with Sarah, Now, Ishmael comes first before Isaac. If you're a Jew, the firstborn is a huge, huge deal. Huge deal. Everything passes on to the firstborn. All promises, all gifts, all inheritance, all everything goes to the firstborn. And yet what's going to happen here is that through Isaac will Abraham's offspring be named. So something happens in, in history where God takes 
everything he's already proclaimed about what culture should look like with the firstborn and flips it on its head. And so now we'll see through Isaac, the offspring, uh, that Abraham's offspring and the promise will continue through Isaac instead of Ishmael, okay? This is a big deal, okay? That's why N.T. Wright says it's about grace, not race. Verse nine says this. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So again, Paul quoting the Old Testament and saying, here's the deal. Um, you're going to have this son and it's going to be born of Sarah and his name's going to be Isaac. Here's the deal about Sarah. She was barren, right? She could not have children. And yet in the midst of history, again, what does God do? God intervenes in the supernatural and grants a child through Sarah that would allow for the promise that was given to Abraham to continue through his lineage. God's intervention to make sure his purposes of salvation and covenant would continue through Abraham's line, okay? Not to Ishmael, but to Isaac, okay? Second story, verse 10. Let me say this before we get into it. The way I'm gonna read this verse 10, if it's up on the screen, that's great, but um, we're gonna do 10, 12, and 13, and we're gonna come back to 11, Okay, because 11 is this interesting statement that Paul does where he clarifies this entire passage almost through verse 11. And so we're going to land there um, instead of verse 13. So 10, 12, and 13, here we go. And not only so, so one more example, but also when Rebecca, okay, had conceived children by one man, our forefather, forefather Isaac, the same Isaac that we just talked about. Though they were, oh, no, sorry, that's verse 11, verse 12. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Words of God. I was just talking to my friend uh, Ricardo. He's a pastor over at Redemption Tempe this morning. And we were kind of just talking about this line. And how do we wrestle with the fact that God himself has said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Like what? Uh oh. God, God, uh, and and so he said, "Well, here here's the way I'm going to do it." And and he told me the story, and I don't have kids yet, so I just had to steal his. But he said his boy, and it, and if you know his two kids, they are just absolutely crazy. But his boy Noah, it's his oldest son was running around, I guess, in children's ministry one Sunday, and said to another girl in the class, "I hate you." Okay. Right? And so Ricardo heard this, this rumor uh, and then went and was like, man, there's no way my son would tell a girl that he hates her. Right? Like, why would he do that? And then he walked up to Noah. He said, Noah, did you tell her that you hate her? He's like, yeah, I hate her. And that was it. And so sometimes, right, we get surprised. But the reality is, is that Noah said it and God did say this. And we have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with what this means. What is God trying to communicate in the midst of that? Like, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. Like, what's he doing here? And so again, let me just give a little more historical context for what's going on in this story. So this is the second of his two illustrations. Again, Rebecca, now the mother. Here's the deal. Rebecca, also barren. Okay? And so God, again, must intervene that a child could be born that would fulfill the promise of God. Okay, so both stories, we see that, the intervention of God in this world. Then you see these two brothers, and they're twins, and the first one comes out, and he's red, and he's hairy. It says he's like a hairy garment. 
And so, which is unfortunate. So they name him Esau, which means hairy, right? Which is unfortunate as well. Then the second baby comes out and he grasps onto Esau's heel. And so they named him Jacob, which means heel holder, okay? So not a lot of baby naming books back in the Old Testament. Like, I don't know. And I thought about to say, like, imagine if our parents did that for us today. Like, I came out, oh, browner than we expected. Or something, you know what I mean? Like, I, and if you saw my Irish father, that would make sense. And so, um, it, it, so these two kids come out. And again, Esau comes first. Isaac comes, Ishmael, uh, Jacob comes second. Esau comes first, Jacob comes second. So all the birthright, all the promise, all the cut, listen, all should be passed down through Esau, but that's not what happens. That's not what happens. Later on, Esau would sell his birthright literally for soup, okay? Like he could receive everything or have a bowl of soup. He went soup, okay? So man is dumb. That's this, the story of that. Um, and so instead of Esau, Jacob will be the recipient of all of the promise and all of the inheritance and all of the blessing through that line. Okay. Again, through God's intervention, this happens and in ways that don't make any sense to us. It should not have worked out this way. If, if, if we look at what we think is sensible based on really so many other aspects of the Old Testament and just life in general, you should say, no, this doesn't make sense. Like it, it should have gone to Ishmael. It should have gone to Esau. And so we can't, we have to wrestle with the fact that's not what God did. And then we come back to this line, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. And let me just say this, what's being communicated even in its old context is not a feeling of hate as we know hate. So probably what's going on in Noah's heart, you know, uh, not the biblical figure, but Ricardo's son, in case I was throwing you off. Uh, what's going on in Noah's heart is a general like disdain for whatever that girl did. Okay. So he's obviously in sin, but whatever. That's what, I don't like what she did to me. So I hate her. This is not what God is saying. God's not saying, okay, because of this or because of that or because of the other, I hate Esau. He's not saying that my feelings in my heart are of hatred towards Esau. But what he is communicating is, a, is an action-oriented type of hate that says when it comes down to it, here's what's going to happen. Jacob will be raised up and Esau will be sent away. Okay. And that's exactly what happens in history. Jacob is raised up. Esau is sent away. Contrary to everything that we think should have happened in this story. Contrary to what culture would say should have happened in this story. And so we continue on and ask the question of, well, why these examples? Why in the midst of what's God doing with Israel? Does he come with these? One, they would have known these stories better than anybody. Okay, and then two, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Okay, so 
God or Paul gives these two illustrations and he comes to the second one. He says, here's, here's what happened with Rebecca and here's what happened in regards to how uh, Jacob was to be raised up and Esau to be set low. Why did it happen? So that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, the hardest part of this is, okay, we, we don't fight election that hard until then we, we read the sentence right before it, that it had nothing to do with anything good they had done or anything bad they had done. While they were, before they were born, God says, I'm going to raise up Jacob and I'm going to send away Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Why? So that, the, so that God's purpose of election would continue. Okay. This, is, this is one of the hardest realities in Scripture, it is how do we wrestle with this truth? Because, listen, you, you can't just say and, and explain away, you can't just skip it over, because almost every Pauline epistle, you're going to run into it. Okay, every time Paul starts engaging in salvation, this term comes up. And so we need to be honest with it. We need to engage with it. And what's it trying to say? That it has nothing to do with our will. And so here's, if you're Israel, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, and you're saying, okay, God, you gave me all of those promises, but only those who are elected and chosen are actually part of the real Israel, the spiritual Israel, the one that will receive the promise. I can imagine the pushback they might have. I'm just saying, no, but, but what happened? What, what changed? Nothing changed. See, throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over, we see God's intervention in cosmic history to accomplish this purpose. That the purpose of election might continue on. That he would choose and elect those within Israel, his chosen people, who would be receivers of the promise and who would not. And all of this happens before they had done anything good or bad, before they were born. God makes this decision. So here's the reality. I'll probably share this story every week because the first time I read Romans 9 and I was confronted with some of these ideals, the first thing I immediately said to my friend Allie, and I won't forget, we're sitting in a car outside of her apartment and she was just saying, hey, I think this is what God's saying in Romans 9. And I literally said to her, I said, if that's true, I don't want to serve that type of God. Right? And she like freaked out on me and said, you can't say that. And da, da, da. I was like, I can say that. And I got out of the car, you know. And, uh, and, and that, that, was, that was my reality. And, and I can only imagine if you're a Jew and you're hearing this and Paul's writing this to you, man, the amount of just kind of frustration and anger and confusion and all that stuff that might exist. So I'm not surprised that I reacted that way. And I'm not surprised that many of you were already starting to feel, wait a minute, but no, he, he couldn't have possibly chosen who would receive the promise and who wouldn't before they ever said, I'm in? Where's free will? I get the pushback. It is all over the place. And it's discussions that have to be had. But my hope for us again today is that amidst this reality, that we would take into mind God's character, that He is sovereign, that He is good 
that he is faithful, that he is loving, that he is wise, that he is everything that we've learned him to be, this changes nothing. And so then we see these hard truths maybe through the lens of God's character instead of maybe our own frustration. And I know that's Paul's hope because over the next few chapters, he's going to help explore kind of that frustration of the Jewish community in the midst of this and talk to them about their futures. So we're going to get more into this even next week. We, we kind of were going back and forth about how we were going to break down this chapter and what aspects we wanted to communicate and how we wanted to make sure we want to communicate this passage, this text, and not a systematic deal of what election says. But we are going to do that in another forum. So many of you have been to a Theology Pub before. Actually, if you have, just raise your hand. Um, theology Pub is a moment for us as a community uh, to get together, to sit around in groups of 10 um, and just talk about harder topics or, or just even cultural topics. So we talked about 10, uh, SB 1062 this, this last time. Uh, the time before that, we talked about gender roles. The time before that, we talked about the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, and then this time, we're going to talk about Romans 9 and election. And so if you're sitting there and you've already got verses popping in your head about why this is not accurate or whatever, and that's good, um, man, come to that. Like, come and engage at that level where we can have those type of discussions. Because I just want to say this, because you're going to, if you're feeling like kind of a, wait, what's he saying right now? You're going to really be saying it next week, okay? Like, if you have frustration today, next week you're going to blow your lid, right? Like you were going to punch the person next to you and say, I'm out. <laughs> There's going to be an opportunity to come and have those discussions, okay? And so if you're here and you're beginning to, that stuff starting to raise up, go sign up for Theology Pub after this. Again, it'll be in groups of 10. We'll do them all over the city if there's a bunch of groups that sign up and stuff like that to talk about these issues. But I want to get back to this. What I think causes us to struggle so much with this idea, and, what, and if I'm, I'm just going to say it very clear, what election is introducing, an orthodox view, well, I wouldn't even say that, a, a view of election, and the way that we interpret it here is to say, God chooses some, but he doesn't choose all. God elects some, but he doesn't elect all. Unto promise, unto salvation, unto blessing. The reason why I think we struggle with this so much, and this was some real great stuff that Nate, Nate and I were talking about, Nate brought up, but just that I feel and we feel that the reason why this is so hard for us to swallow is because we live in the same type of culture, in the same type of mindset, in the same type of like heart, just level of the Jews. The people that will be reading this, that we just kind of think, based on what we know, that we deserve it that we are entitled to God's grace, that we're entitled to his mercy, that we're entitled to his love, that we're entitled to his forgiveness, that we're entitled to have Jesus as our savior, that we're, in, and on and on. We, we have this mentality and it is thread through every aspect of our culture and what we believe, that these are entitlements for us and we deserve it. And if Romans has taught us anything over the first eight chapters, this is, that's not true. We don't deserve any of this. Any mercy that God might show to anyone is undeserving. 
Any grace that he might show to anyone who receives grace is undeserved grace. That's why it's called grace. And so I think that we struggle with this because we think that we deserve it. And I think that permeates the rest of our faith as well. Here's why this is such good news, okay? And I, I want to land on some good news if there's some... Romans 8 communicates to us, right? In 29.30, the Anthony preached, right? If you were here. Romans 8, 29.30 on into 30-whatever. That there is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God. Right? Height nor depth, life nor death. On a, nothing nor anything else in all of creation Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Here's, here's the truth. If it were dependent on me to pursue God, to find God, to believe in God, if it was up to sinful man and sinful woman to pursue and know God, I guarantee you there's no way Romans 8 could be true. The only way that God could guarantee that there is absolutely nothing that could ever separate us from the love of God is if he is sovereign over every aspect of it. Otherwise, man, I'm in and out almost every other day when it's up to me. When it's our choice, when it's sinful man saying, okay, all right, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to believe, it's going to be me. God knows, man, that has never worked in all of history. Has man ever been able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and pursue God? It hasn't happened. The only way God could fulfill all of the promises that we've just rejoiced in in chapter 8 and before is if he was sovereign over every part of it. Because there's, there's no room for us to run the other direction. God's got you. You're his. It's done. When you put the ball in our court, time in and time out, and we don't even have to look too far, just look to the mistake you made yesterday, right? We dropped the ball. God never drops the ball. God is sovereign. And so in his character, in this pursuit, this, this should cause us, and this is why I said at the beginning, man, I, I hope that there is rejoicing in this room because the truth is, is that if it was about you as much as I, listen, as much as even I would like it to be about me, like I, I step back from this and, and even in that moment of saying, I don't want to follow that type of God. When I said that, I'm walking out thinking, no, I want to be in control. I know better. But the good news for us today, the reason why we'll sing and celebrate is that it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about God's love for you. That he chose you. That he elected you. That he saved you. That's why we sing. That's why we rejoice. Because now, because of that truth, you could try and run as far the other direction and you will get nowhere. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God because he brought you in. Not because you walked in through the front door. This is celebratory news for the church. Now, there's a lot of questions and implications in the midst of this, but I want to I want to start sitting in a little bit. I just want us to sit in some of the tension here 
Again, come, ask questions, sign up for Theology Pub. But John Piper has this quote about this, and he says, um, if we take the edge off of chapter 9, we invite people into a relationship with a Jesus that doesn't exist. Okay. And that is, that is the last thing as your pastor that I would ever want to do. I want us to be as honest with Scripture as Scripture is with us when it calls us out, when it indicts us, and I want us to pursue it. And like I said, next week, next week there's some even harder lines than this one, okay? And so let us now sit in the reality and in the truth of the gospel that in the same way that God had to intervene throughout the Old Testament, right? He had to intervene to make Rebecca have a baby, to make Sarah have a baby that would continue on in the promise and his purpose of election. God had to intervene his greatest intervention, Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is why we, result, we just love the gospel and we sing the gospel and we talk about the gospel. It's because the gospel is a story about God who knowing full well that we would blow it, said, I'm going to intervene. I will send myself. I will live. I will die. I will raise. And I will secure finally what the people could not do for themselves for thousands of years. And it will be finished as Christ proclaims on the cross. And as we look towards Good Friday, man, what celebration that we have a Savior that, listen, emits any hard theology or doctrine, loved us that much. I want to land with this text. I think every week that I preach this, I think I might land here. And it's from Romans 11 where we'll head, and it's where Paul is going to land this ship as he gives this kind of three-chapter, like, you know, deal on Israel and future and election and all that stuff. This is where Paul lands in Romans 11, 33-36. I want to read this, and then I'm going to pray. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Lord, I, I confess my own just frustration and fear and all the stuff of just not being in control. I know at the heart level, that's where I'm at. It's just, God, I, I want to pick, and I want to I navigate this. I want to choose the team. I want to... Lord, but we reflect on the idea... That God, that all of us in this room, before we had done anything righteous or unrighteous, before we had sinned once, before we had repented, God, that you knew us. God, and that you chose us. One for your glory, that your purpose of election might continue, but God, for our greatest joy, knowing the depths of us that, God, I know, man, if, if you had not secured this thing, I would be out the door. 
I'm that fickle, Lord. And so I just pray your continued grace and God, give us continued hearts of thanksgiving and celebration in this place because we all here who love and know Jesus as our Savior have been saved by God alone. There's not a better truth in this world than the fact that, God, you will never allow anything to separate us because we are yours. God, I pray for any who might be here just visiting. God, that's a hard truth for, for us who love God and Christ to wrap our minds around. And so, Lord, I pray for those who might be visiting today who just think everything, oh, this whole Bible is rubbish and just, God, I pray you would communicate love and grace. I pray that, God, they would see I pray that you would save. God, that it's not this, we don't need to sit here. God, we won't sit here on Easter and just have this huge emotional push to raise your, God, that you would just save because you save. So Lord, bless us now as we sing, as we respond. God, how inscrutable are your ways. How vast are you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Spirit. It's your name we pray. Amen. So now, as always, we just take a, a couple minutes to sit and reflect on God's word. And yeah, some heavy text today. Just sit and examine. And I, I'd ask, you know, let me do this. I want you to have some time yourself, but I also want to do this. You guys close your eyes. I want to read that. I want to read that text from Romans again just that we remember that it's God to be magnified in this place and not ourselves. So let's do that now. Let me read this one more time. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.